Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through verse 25. I'm going to ask that you follow along with all 25 verses. Read along as I read them. Then we'll ask God for His help as uh, we uh, as we hear His word. Luke twenty three verses one through twenty five, and it reads: Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, "We found this man misleading our nation." And forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. But he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection. And, and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. 
I want to preach to you this morning on the topic, when Jesus is no longer popular. When Jesus is no longer popular. Let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we come before You in this text, trembling at the truth that is is in it, uh, that is presented to us this morning. The reality that when Jesus is no longer popular, people turn against Him. Father, I pray that You would convict us this morning, lead us to Your truth. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive Your Word this morning. I pray that You would help me as I preach this, that I would preach Your Word, not mine. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are all sorts of uh, sizes of icebergs in the frigid waters of Greenland. Some small icebergs and some icebergs that are as large as buildings. What's interesting is that sometimes these icebergs are moving in two different directions. Why is that? Well, it's because the smaller icebergs are driven by the surface winds, whereas the large icebergs are driven by the deep currents of the ocean and as a result moving in opposite directions. As true as that is of icebergs, it is true of us. There are those who are driven by the deep ocean currents of God's Word, of the Holy Spirit, of God's love. And there are others who are driven by the surface winds of culture, of popularity. And that's my question this morning is this. When Jesus is no longer popular, which direction are you moving in? Are you driven by these surface winds of culture, of whim, of desire, of emotions? Or are you driven by the depths of God's current? Early Friday morning, Jesus was put on trial. We saw last week how it was a sham trial. It was a mock trial as they mocked Christ. He got through that process with a guilty verdict from the religious leaders. Now they take him to a man named Pilate. It's still early on Friday morning. They're delivering him over to the Romans. This has to happen. Because the Jews, under Roman law, don't have the ability to put somebody to death. They can declare uh, that someone ought to die, but it is up to the Roman governor to make that decision. And so they have to take him to Pilate to get Pilate to ratify the decision that they have already made. Not only is this a piece of his history, this is also prophecy. 
Jesus himself said uh, earlier in Luke, in chapter 9, verse 44, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to man. To de- be delivered over to is, is to be given to. It's, it's a reference to his death. The Son of Man is going to be delivered to man is to say he's going to be given to the Gentiles. Here what we see is that Jesus is turned over to Rome. And he stands before Pilate for, for trial. In the first six words of our text this morning, we see the unity in this movement against Jesus. It says, then the whole company of them arose. Every elder, every priest, every religious leader, got up together against Jesus. And this Friday morning, they took him to Pilate. Question. What happens, what happens in your life when Jesus is no longer popular? We've got to understand something about sin. Sin is delusional. Write that down. Sin is delusional. Meaning there are times where you're with Jesus. There are times where things are going well and you're walking in the direction of the faithful. But what happens when Jesus is no longer popular at a cultural level or an emotional level in your own life? Well, the problem is this. Sin is delusional. Meaning, if I were to ask you, are you right now following Jesus, or are you right now in sin, you might not even realize the answer to that latter question is yes, because sin is delusional. This is horrifying. Just sit with me for a moment. This is horrifying. It's possible to be in sin and be so twisted in your mind that you think you're doing what is right. Because sin twists reality. Are you with me? Sin calls what is destructive good. And sin calls what is good destructive. Sin calls what is death life. And sin calls what is life death. Sin calls your enemy friend. And sin calls the one who who could be the friend for you that sticks closer than a brother. Sin calls the friend your enemy. In our text, Jesus here is brought to Pilate, and and Pilate gives Jesus a uh, a quick-style trial that was popular in the Roman Empire. This this trial consists of uh, the charges, uh, a a quick examination of the charges, or of the charged, I should say, and then a verdict. 
And that's what we see happen here uh, in verse 2. It follows this pattern. We see these three charges that are brought before, G, uh, before Pilate against Jesus. They begin to accuse him. Charge number one is this. He is misleading our nation. That word misleading is the word perverted. It's also the very same thing that Jesus said of the uh, religious leaders, saying they are the ones perverting the nation. Well, now they're using Jesus' charge against them against him. Charge number one, Pilate, is he is perverting our nation. He's misleading us. Number two, the second charge in verse two is that he is forbidding us to pay our taxes. And number three, he says that he himself is the Christ. Well, let's think about that. Uh, Jesus is not perverting the nation. Uh, Jesus never once uh, anywhere recorded told them to not pay taxes to Caesar. As a matter of fact, Jesus told them to do what? Yeah, to pay taxes. So that's a complete lie. And the third charge, he claims to be Christ. Well, okay, that one's true. He does claim to be Christ. <laughs> However, uh, Pilate, as he uh, examines these charges against Jesus, what he discovers is simply this, that the, according to Pilate, this man is harmless. Uh, he, is, uh, he, he, he doesn't deserve death. He's innocent of these charges. And uh, he's, he's just, you know, he's a fanatic, according to, to Pilate. Uh, he's, a, he's a harmless enthusiast. And so Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man, verse 4. Now listen, according to Roman law, this should be the end. He's rendered his verdict. And Jesus should be released. But, but they were urgent. You know, urgency can be a good thing, right? Urgency to repent is a good thing. Urgency to run away from your sin and run to Christ is a good thing. Urgency to ask for forgiveness and own up to what we've done and say I'm sorry is a good thing. But you know, Satan uses urgency as well. Here, they are urgent not to do what is right, but they are urgent to do what is wrong. Listen, when, when Jesus is no longer popular in your life, you are urgent to sin. When Jesus is no longer popular in your life, you're urgent. You're urgent to do what is wrong. You are urgent to, to get behind your computer and to get the kids out of the room so that you can look at something. She's urgent for her husband to leave so she can text her lover. In sin, we are urgent. We are urgent to get alone and crack open the bottle and drink ourselves into oblivion. I wonder if you know anything about the urgency of sin. They can't take innocent for an answer. It says, verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching 
throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Pilate finds no fault in Jesus. Three times Pilate tries to release him. This is the first. Pilate gives an innocent verdict. Attempt number one. Well, that doesn't go through because of the urgency. We see attempt number two. Pilate is going to try again to release Jesus. When Pilate hears that Jesus is a Galilean, it's like a little light bulb goes off. Pilate has a new strategy that pops into his head. What's the strategy? Well, you've got to understand something about the way the government was back then. Pilate was kind of the Roman governor, uh, and then Israel had their own local leadership uh, that was uh, considered to be their, their king, uh, as Israel's supposed to have a king. However, even the king was appointed by Caesar Augustus of Rome. Uh, so he wasn't truly the leader of Israel. He was merely a Roman appointee. The king over the region where Jesus is from is named Herod. This is Herod Antipas. Herod happens to be in Jerusalem at this time. And so when Pilate hears that Jesus is a Galilean, he says, ah, I'm going to put him off onto this guy that I don't even like, one of my enemies, Herod. I'm going to let Herod deal with him. So, scene two, Jesus now walks about a 10-minute walk from where Pilate is to where Herod is. And now Jesus is standing before Herod. Now, Herod is excited to see Jesus. This is a moment for Herod to stand before a local celebrity who he's heard about. Oh, he's heard about how Jesus has opened the eyes of the blind. Herod has heard about how Jesus has corrected the limbs of the lame. Herod has heard about how Jesus has raised even people from the dead. And so he's been wanting to see Jesus. We move from Pilate's indifference to Herod's amusement. Herod is amused by Jesus. Herod wants to see Jesus perform. However, when Jesus no longer performs, Herod is no longer amused. I grew up going to a lot of Cleveland Cavaliers games. 1997, Bobby Sura had this amazing dunk. It got him a ticket into the slam dunk contest. Now, this is a big deal for Cavs fans because we were terrible. So to have a Cavalier represented in the slam dunk contest was pretty cool. Not to mention, white folks, <laughs> he was white. Look, this is rare. <laughs> All right? This was a big deal. Um, and he did terrible. <laughs> uh, the 1997 slam dunk contest was considered to be one of the most boring events 
where no-namers could, uh, were barely getting to the, room, to the rim, it was described, of the 1997 slam dunk contest. Um, but for a moment, look, while Bobby Sir was performing in Cleveland, we loved him. I remember going to games, we would be trying to get Bobby Sir's autograph, which I did. We would be down there on the court level uh, trying to see him. Like he, he was a big deal for a while. A year or two later, Bobby Sura was not playing so well in Cleveland any, anymore. And I remember being at another game where we were booing him so loud. Like I was, you know, trying to get his attention uh, because he was not playing well. And he actually turned and looked at the crowd and kind of went like this. And I think he might have said something. <laughs> Look, my point is this. In sports, there's this culture in which we love somebody as long as they're performing well. But as soon as they stop performing, we become uh, their enemy. Now, we're going to see this with Christ. As long as Jesus is uh, one who might perform for Herod, you see what I'm saying? But if Jesus no longer performs, I wonder if this is, resonates with your own spiritual walk. Like, how many people want to see Jesus perform? How many people are cool with God and cool with the idea of Jesus as long as it's working out for me? I recently had somebody, a brother in Christ, who said to me, you know, I, I believe in Jesus because uh, it's, it's, it's worked out uh, blessings in my life. And I thought to myself, brother, I'm concerned for your soul. Do you come to Jesus because of the perceived blessings that you're going to get from him? Do you love the blessings of Jesus or do you love Christ himself? You see what I'm saying? Do you come to Jesus because of the perceived uh, uh, belief as to what he's going to do for you in your life to make things better? to make your world better, to give you a happy and healthy family? Or what if things start to crumble? Do you still love him then? Do you still love him then? We come to Jesus not out of amusement. We come to Jesus not to just see him perform for us. But we come to Jesus because He's true. He's right. He's Lord. He's Savior. He's God. Well, Herod comes, is excited to come before Jesus for all the wrong reasons. As a result of him not performing, it says in verse 11 that Herod treats Jesus with contempt. He mocks him. He, he puts on Jesus' splendid clothing. And then in verse 12, there's just this interesting historical fact that says, and, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before that, they were at enmity with one another. Sin brings friends together. When Jesus is no longer popular, you start to find other people for whom Jesus is no longer popular. And all of a sudden, you find some camaraderie. Oh, you might even feel like you found some friendship that you've never found in the church. I'm going to tell you right now, if you robbed a bank with somebody, as long as it was successful, 
It's a good way to make a friend. All right? <laughs> like, you do a dirty deed with somebody. You get out there. Sin draws people together. Sin offers a, uh, a fraud kind of relationship. It looks good. It feels right. It feels intimate. Look, when two people build a relationship on gossip, you're going to feel like the closest people in the world. But it's a fraud kind of relationship. How different is the relationship that God offers us through Jesus? Well, in this case, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other through this assault on Jesus Christ. Now, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, also finding no fault in him. Pilate now stands before Christ again. I'm sure he wasn't happy about it. He's probably getting annoyed by it. And he tries a third attempt, a third strategy, if you would, uh, at releasing Jesus. What does he do? Well, he says, I'm going to offer you a compromise. I'm going to uh, punish him, and then I will release him. This punishment was a whipping, a scourging. This, he, this, this happens. He goes through with it. This is an attempt to release Jesus. If you know anything about a Roman whipping, it was serious. This whip would be filled with bits of bone and small metal balls that would bruise the skin. Small hooks would begin ripping away at that bruised flesh. And they would generally survive this whipping, but there was nothing, nothing friendly about it. The flesh would be opened up. Blood would begin to flow. This is what happened to Jesus in this moment. And it was offered as a compromise from Pilate. Let me go ahead and do this. Uh, let's, let's, you know, he, he, this, this guy evidently is crazy. He's a harmless enthusiast, but... You know, I could see how he's, he could potentially be dangerous. So let's go ahead and teach him a lesson. Let's whip him so that he will learn. Does this satisfy the crowds? Their blood craving remains unsatisfied. And they continue to call out for Jesus' death. Now, in the midst of this, three times, Pilate declares that Jesus is innocent, at least three times. In verse 4, Pilate has already said, I find no guilt in this man. In verse 14, Pilate says, uh, after examining him uh, before you, I did not find this man guilty of 
any of your charges. Even King Herod, who was known to be violent and unstable, said that Jesus was innocent. Verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Verse 22, Pilate says, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Now I emphasize this, not to emphasize Pilate's innocence in putting Jesus on the cross. We're going to talk about Pilate in just a moment. I emphasize this not to emphasize Herod's innocence in the crucifixion of Christ. But rather, I present this to you to emphasize Christ's innocence as he goes towards the cross. This is what Luke is trying to get us to see, is that they found no fault in him. The innocence of Jesus is extremely important for us. Jesus was human. He was human. He was an actual human. Not didn't just present as a human. He was real, really human. Fully God, fully divine. Took on human flesh, fully human. Just like us, but not just like us. Here's how he was unlike us. He was sinless. Human, like us, yet sinless. The Bible tells us that Jesus perfectly obeyed God. When Jesus was a little boy, he was called to be one who is filled with wisdom. How many four-year-olds or five-year-olds can we say that are running around, we like, you know, this boy is filled with wisdom. I've got two boys. I ain't going to say that about either of them. There are times where they act with wisdom. There's times where you see some, see some wisdom in them. But to call a seven, eight-year-old filled with wisdom, this is what Jesus was called as a boy. As Jesus became a man, he faced Satan head on. For 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted and tried by the devil. The devil pulled out every trick in the book. And the, the Bible says that the devil is wily. He's strategic. He knows how to attack you. I wonder if you've ever uh, been, been uh, dealing with the strategies of the enemy. I wonder if you know how good he is at finding your weak point and then just sliding that dagger right through the armor that you thought you had. But Jesus came out of the wilderness a champion. The devil could not find one strategy to trip him up. The Gospels have no record of Jesus sinning. One of Jesus' own disciples, who we talked about a few weeks ago, Peter, says this of Jesus. He says, He committed no sin. No guile was found on his lips. Another one of his disciples, John, nicknamed Jesus the righteous. 
And John said this of Jesus. He says, in him was no sin. And of all the haters that Jesus had on earth, there is not one shred of evidence, not a book, not a letter, not a page, not a word, which brings condemnation on Jesus. Nobody could witness against him. There was no fault in him. Jesus, like us, yet with no sin. All of the historical and biblical and theological accounts hold up. Only Jesus could say, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. John 15, 10. Church, why is the innocence of Jesus so important? Well, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was innocent, not merely as a historical fact, but for us and for our salvation. Jesus' innocence allows Him to be our representative before God. Jesus' innocence allows Him to be our substitute for our sin. Jesus' innocence allows Jesus to be the one mediator between you and God. Jesus' innocence allows Him to fulfill God's original purpose for Adam. Stewarding the earth. Ruling creation. Jesus' innocence allows Him to be the pattern and model for all of us to follow. Don't you understand that Jesus does not save you apart from Himself? Jesus does not save you at a distance. But Jesus saves you through living the life that you should have lived. What do I mean by that? Well, we have to talk about our union with Christ. In salvation, in our salvation... Us receiving the benefits of our salvation mean that we are in union with Christ. Romans 5, 18 says, By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So as one theologian puts it, throughout Christ's entire life on earth, from the time of His birth to the time of His ascension into heaven, God thought of us as being in Christ. Meaning, before you were ever born, as God observed His Son, perfectly following Him in all obedience, God thought of you as being in Him. God thought of you as going through everything that He went through, including His obedience. Why do I emphasize this? Why is the innocence of Jesus so important? Well, church, let me ask you another question. If you were to stand on trial before men, how would you fare? Let's just say that you were standing on trial and all they had to do was prove that you have sinned one time in your life. 
And everybody that knows you was called to give an account, whether they wanted to or not. They had to come, and they had to testify. And you look out that window. I mean, it's going all the way down to North Avenue. Like, you can't even see the end of the line. Your family's out there reluctantly. They're going to come in. <laughs> Your friends are out there. Your haters are out there. They're excited for this moment, right? Your ex. Yep. Everybody's out there. Question, how would you fare? Well, let's, let's just turn this a little, a little bit. Uh, let's say that this trial is not before man, but you have a trial before God himself. The holy God, the creator of the universe. And you've got to stand before this God and be found righteous in order to enter into his kingdom. Question, how would you fare? Come on, we all know that we would not do well. And just as you look at that long line of people against you in your trial against man, and you know, well, you know, they're just going to overlook it. No, they're not going to overlook it. You're guilty. And God isn't going to overlook it. You're guilty. So how can you stand before God as a sinner? You need to understand the innocence of Christ and your union with Christ. What this doctrine means that we see in the Scriptures is if you are in Christ, then you stand on trial in Christ. Christ is tried here and He is found innocent. When you are tried before God, may you be found innocent. In Christ. Listen, church, Jesus is your righteousness. His innocence. His innocence in this trial is not merely a sign of injustice against him, which it is. We talked about that last week. But his innocence in this trial is for us and for our salvation so that we might be tried and declared to be righteous. The crowds, the crowds demand at this point His crucifixion. In verse 18, they are unsatisfied with the whipping and their blood thirst once more, and so they shout out, crucify Him, crucify Him. And in, in verse 18, there's a new character that enters the story, and His name is Barabbas. Everybody say, Barabbas. Barabbas is a man who's been locked up for insurrection and for murder. Insurrectionist is also the word that would be used uh, for uh, thief. Meaning, you might remember, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Well, that could also be translated to insurrectionists. Who were the two people that Jesus was crucified with? Likely, they were the uh, colleagues of Barabbas. There were three crosses. Barabbas was likely the ringleader. 
And so as Jesus now is declared to be righteous, he's declared to be innocent, rather. He's been whipped. Uh, Pilate wants to release him. They are indignant. They shout out, crucify us. And they say, we release to us, who? Barabbas. He is a dangerous man. Scholars say that Barabbas would be likened today to a terrorist or a school shooter. He ought to be locked up and the key thrown away in our day. Or back then, he ought to be put on the cross. That's what he deserves. So Pilate doesn't want to release Barabbas. And so again, three times, he's arguing with the crowd and he asks them, what has this man, referring to Jesus, what has this man done to deserve death? And three times they keep shouting out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And verse 23, it says that their voice prevailed. And it's at this moment we see what it looks like when Jesus is no longer popular. Yeah, some people are controlled by the deep currents of God's Word and they're moving in a certain direction. And others might be moving in that direction as well, but they're not controlled by the same currents. They're controlled by the currents of popularity, these surface winds. And when those surface winds change, what happens to those people? They begin moving the other direction. What happens when Jesus is no longer popular? Number one, when Jesus is no longer popular, indifference turns into condemnation. Indifference turns into condemnation. The Nazis used their propaganda to develop not necessarily hatred, but indifference toward the plight of the Jews. Isn't that an interesting strategy? Let's not automatically attack the people group. Let's just make people indifferent to their sufferings. Was not this the problem of, of slavery in America? Indifference. Supposed indifference, Frederick Douglass, in his famous uh, speech on the 4th of July, Frederick Douglass talking of the churches as being indifferent, he says they're really not indifferent. But their indifference has led them to being on the side of the oppressor. Indifference toward Jesus is no better than rejection of Jesus. Indifference towards Jesus merely will lead you to condemnation. You just haven't got there yet. The surface winds haven't changed that strong yet to where it's clear for you. Nobody gets to heaven because they're indifferent toward Jesus. Pilate is indifferent toward Jesus, yet he now moves to condemnation. He caves to pressure. He determines in verse 24 that he's going to give them uh, uh, what they want. He decides that the, their demand should be granted. And we learn in another place that he ceremonially washes his hands of the blood of Christ. But I'll tell you what, he can't get the blood of Christ 
off of his hands. This is the problem with indifference. Are you indifferent toward Jesus? Are you uninterested in the things of God? Are you nonchalant about obedience to Jesus? Are you unsympathetic toward the heart of God? Are you inattentive toward the Word of God? Look, if 10% of your life looks like you're following Jesus and uh, you know, you're going to church on Sundays and occasionally reading your Bible, but 90% of your life is organized, disconnected from God, 90% of your life has nothing to do with glorifying God and obeying God, giving any thought to God. Well, friend, you're indifferent to Jesus. Are you indifferent to Him? Indifference leads to condemnation. What happens when Jesus is not popular? Number one, number one, indifference turns into condemnation. Number two, bad turns into good. When Jesus is no longer popular, what is bad is now called good. In the movie The Lord of the Rings, which I've never watched the entire thing because it is incredibly boring, but I've seen the beginning a number of times and then turned it off and said, give me something else to watch. Um, but at the beginning, toward the beginning, there's this little creature, I think his name is Gollum or Gollum or Gollum, Gumby. Gumby, Gumby? Gollum. And uh, Gollum finds this ring. Now the ring is evil. It's like uh, this, this, it has this evil presence about it. You're saying, no, just go with me now for the sake of my illustration. And, uh, and he finds this ring. It hasn't done him well. All right, let's just, can, we, can you give me that? It hasn't done him well. But what does he say about the ring? My precious. It's my precious, my precious. What is destroyed? Listen. All right, enough, enough golem. Enough golem. You Lord of the Ring people, do your own thing after church. Go watch the movie. Everybody else, let's watch some basketball or something, all right? My precious. What is destructive is my precious. You see where I'm going with that? When Jesus is no longer popular, what is bad for you is considered to be my love. It's what I want. It's, it's what I need. My precious. And I'll just turn this and just put it out there. Just what sin in your life is my precious to you? What sin in your life is something that, that you know you know it's destructive for you. You know it's leading you down a bad path. You know it's leading toward rejection of Jesus, but you love it. You love it. You find your hope in it. Verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but delivered Jesus to their will. Don't you understand that the crowd saw Barabbas as the good guy and Jesus as the enemy? This is how sin twists our reality as bad turns into good. Number three, public praise turns into public scorn. Public praise turns into public scorn. We see the people here. They, they came to Jerusalem. 
to honor God. That's the irony. They came to honor God. These are the people who came to Jerusalem to offer a lamb. These are the key people who came to Jerusalem to observe the Passover in which God passed over His people out of love. They are probably some of the people that were there that Sunday as Jesus is being publicly praised on Palm Sunday. And their public praise has turned into scorn. Why? Well, Jesus is interrupting their plans. They didn't come for all this drama. They came for their religiosity. They came for a nice, easy week in Jerusalem of having friends over for a Passover meal. And all this Jesus drama is messing up their plans. Jesus comes, church, and interrupts your plans. Let me ask you another question. What plans is he interrupting? What plans? What plans for sexual immorality is Jesus interrupting? What plans for escape is Jesus interrupting? What plans for selfishness is Jesus interrupting? What plans of yours is Jesus interrupting? Well, what is our hope? I'll close with this. Jesus sets the prisoner free. That is our hope. There's irony all through this passage. Jesus is accused of perverting the nation, when in all reality, the accusers have perverted the nation. Jesus is condemned by the very people who came to worship God. Think about that. Pilate and Herod are reconciled in friendship against Jesus while Jesus, through his death, is about to offer the greatest kind of reconciliation you can imagine. There's one last bit of irony that I want to point out before we close. And that is this. What Barabbas actually did, Jesus is charged with. On a cross that was made for Barabbas, Jesus hung. The condemnation that Barabbas deserved, Jesus was accused of, and he took. How marvelous is the redemptive plan of God that even in the details leading up to his crucifixion, God interwove into this moment a substitution. Jesus in this moment takes the place, listen, he takes the place of a, a, a murderer. Jesus in this moment takes the place of a prisoner. In this moment, God in His sovereignty appointed this as a picture for us. Jesus sets the prisoner free by His death on the cross that the prisoner deserves. As Jesus will hang between two insurrectionists, He hangs on the cross of Barabbas. I wonder if Barabbas ever became a Christian. I wonder if Barabbas ever came to realize that on that day when Jesus took His place on the cross, it wasn't just a physical taking of His place on the cross, 
uh, that, that gave him a couple extra years in his life. I wonder if Barabbas ever came to realize that when Jesus took his place on the cross, he took his place in such a way that could offer him life eternal. I wonder if he ever came to realize that Jesus took the place for all who call on his name. Because listen, we stand condemned. It is you and I who stand condemned. Yeah, Pilate was indifferent to him. Herod was amused by him. The religious leaders were troubled by him. The crowds were hostile toward him. But we, we stand condemned in every single one of those ways against Jesus. And then I've got to realize, was it for my crimes? He hung on that tree. Died he for me? Who caused him pain? Was it for me? Who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that Christ, my God, would die for me? How wonderful is our God. How shocking is His pity toward the sinner. How amazing is His love that He would die for us. In Luke's sequel, he declares, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that God has made that same Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. As God rose Jesus from the dead, He rose Him to rule and to reign. Family, turn to Jesus this morning. Turn from your indifference. Turn from your uh, amusement of Jesus. Turn from your religiosity. Turn from your hostility toward Jesus and receive Jesus this morning, not as your enemy, but as your Savior and as your friend. And for all who turn, what they find is no condemnation in Christ. The same Jesus who died that day is the Jesus who encountered that woman caught in adultery. As after the accusers walked away, she looked at Jesus and Jesus said, Who was there to accuse you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. If Barabbas himself were to turn in repentance to Jesus, the risen Christ who took his place that Friday, if Barabbas himself were to turn to Jesus, his response would be, neither do I. Go and sin no more. If Pilate himself were to turn to Jesus in repentance, he would hear the same word of encouragement and grace, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And for everybody who is hearing this word today, the invitation comes to you the same. Turn to Christ and hear him say, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the death that he died in our place, the substitution that we have in him. We are here because of his grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.